So my goal this morning is to talk about something that was recaptured in the Reformation, and that was congregational participation in worship. Um, these short um, lecturettes, as you would have it, um, never cover all the different details. There are books written on these kinds of things. So my goal is to give these bird's eye views of things that happen so we can form a category of a historical understanding of what happened over 500 years ago. And remember that even though we celebrate the Reformation as starting with Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses in 1517, the Reformation winds were blowing 200 years at least before that with people like Wycliffe and Huss. So when we jump in at the Reformation, it's just a convenient way for us to remember. And we've, we've usually looked at the things before Luther as pre-Reformation or the winds of the Reformation. So what I want to do this morning, I'm getting a little feedback up here that you probably can't hear in the booth. So um, what I want to do this morning is focus on one aspect of even the, the recovery of congregational participation in worship, and specifically singing. So I'm going to bring us into a historical preview of what the early church in general terms was marked by, some musical um, happenings that happened throughout the time leading up to the Reformation, and then we're going to look not just specifically through Luther, which was my original intent, but also look a little bit at um, Zwingli and Calvin because they all approached corporate worship differently. They all approached specifically singing differently. Um, so that'll be the track that we'll have this morning. And I, I know there will be time for questions afterward, uh, given the length I have planned. So if we look at a broad, and I mean very broad overview, bringing out some congregational aspects of what happened in worship services in the early church, not necessarily what we see in the Bible, um, but what happens after the biblical account in God's history. So synagogue worship obviously had an impact on Christians who were formerly Jews and, and worshiping as Jews, and now they're worshiping as Christians. So in the synagogue, worship would include elements and let me define that because it'll be important all throughout this morning. Um, when we talk about elements and forms in worship, the elements are the things that we say are prescribed by Scripture. Those are the things that we do. Um, we'll talk about this in the sermon this morning, but like the things that the Scriptures command us to do, like preaching and singing and praying and public reading of Scripture and things like that, those are the elements. The forms of worship are how we do that. The order that we put them in, <clears throat> um, if, we're, if the element is public reading of scripture, how do we work that out? Is it one person reading? Is it congregational unison? Is it a responsive reading? Is it a choral reading? So there are many different forms that can take as we accomplish the element of the public reading of scripture. So in the synagogue worship, it included elements of reading the scripture and then expounding upon it. Of course, this would have been Old Testament scriptures, expounding, explaining, or exhorting the scripture. So it's the, it's the homiletic pro approach, the preaching approach after the scripture was read. Also prayers and psalm singing, predominantly what happened in synagogue worship. <clears throat> so those elements obviously formed the basis of um, Christian worship as in the early church. But the additions would be things like the Lord's Supper. So instead of sacrifices, we celebrate the one sacrifice in the Christian church. And the content was um, 
explicitly and undeniably and overwhelmingly Christ. Christ and his work and what he accomplished. <clears throat> we have some documents in the early church. Um, there was a letter, there, there's a famous letter that we have um, that we have found from Pliny the Younger, who is the Ro- Roman governor of Bithynia. And he wrote to Trajan, the emperor. <clears throat> He wrote to Trajan, the emperor, and he was asking help. What do I do with these Christians? How do I deal with them? And he was dealing with many things, but he, also, but he did give us a statement that really focuses on our topic at hand. When in the letter, he wrote, on a stated day, this is, this is the governor to the emperor, on a stated day, they have been accustomed to meet before daybreak and to recite a hymn among themselves to Christ, as though he were a god. That's the way he described that part of the worship. Now, he also described other things like, here's what I do if they don't burn incense to you. Here's what I do if they do burn incense. Am I on the right track here? Because when you're in the Roman Empire, if the emperor is not happy, you're not happy, right? So this is what he was seeking counsel on. But to hear that early on in the second century, early in the second century, that one of the things that a non-believer saw was that they gathered together and sang a hymn to Christ gives us that understanding. About 40 years later, Justin Martyr wrote what is known as his first apology, and he gives some descriptions of what worship was like. There were many things he covered in this as well. I'm cherry-picking the, the worship. So after a description of a baptism service and what that looked like, it included prayers and a kiss, a holy kiss, the Lord's Supper along with a prayer, and he described the prayer at the Lord's Supper in the baptism service this way. The prayer offering thanks at considerable length for our being counted worthy to receive these things at his hands. Then there would be a unified amen, and then the next section gave a description in more detail of the theology behind the Lord's Supper. And then in the following section, we read these words about a typical um, worship gathering. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, And the memoirs of the apostles, which in another place in this document, he says the memoirs of the apostles, which we call the gospels. So it's referred to both ways. The memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. So you can see it's a a strong attention to the reading of the word. Then when the reader has ceased, the president is how he, re- he referred to the elder in charge. The president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we said before, when our prayer is ended, bread and water are brought. And the president, um, the president in the manner, in like manner, offers prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability. And the people assent saying, Amen. And then his description goes on to describe the Lord's Supper, an an offering, how they would use that offering. So it says bread and water. In in an earlier paragraph, he says bread and wine mixed with water. So the terms were interchangeable in, in, in martyr's time. 
in Justin's time in 155, when, around 155 when he wrote this document. So as we're moving forward, I just want to draw a few random notes. Obviously, we could be here for weeks if we talk about the development of music within the church from 155 to the Reformation. But a couple of things are interesting on how music was used in the early church. <clears throat> Arius, who was pronounced a heretic at the Council of Nicaea in 325 for theological issues, that's the way the councils work. So people would teach and if uh, the bishops and the, the other leaders didn't think they were teaching something that was true, <clears throat> this is going to be a long day for me not being able to clear my throat. I can tell it. If they thought something was not true by a specific teacher, then they would call a council. And those councils could last years, and they would evaluate, they would challenge, and at the end of that council, all of the people involved, mostly bishops, but not only bishops, would pronounce whether the person and the doctrine in, at hand was true or false. And it was false, it was pronounced anathema. So at the council um, of Nicaea in 325, Arius was condemned, and he was condemned for theological issues, and one of the primary ways he taught his theological issues to the people around him was through singing. He would write hymns with his doctrine put into the hymns, and then people would sing it. And so that way, we know that when people learn doctrine through hymns, they tend to remember it more. And so what would happen after that is the people who thought his teaching was heresy, they would take the same melody and rewrite the words so that the people could sing the same hymns with proper doctrine. So this, this was a way even early in the church that people would learn doctrine. Singing text in worship that were not composed exclusively of scripture was prohibited at the Council of Laodicea, that, which met from 360 to 381. So that meant if you were not specifically singing the words of scripture, not just a, a text that was written from scripture, Re, uh, a revision of scripture, like many of our hymns, or th hymns on theological doctrines, they were disallowed. You could only sing hymns that were exactly from the words of scripture. And that happened as, in, in the Council of Lycia, as I said, 360 to 381. There were always concerns over using instruments at different points. Augustine thought this. Augustine's um, struggle with it was he thought it looked too worldly because the pagans used um, instruments in all of their um, pagan activities and all, all the activities that he didn't think Christians should be involved in. So therefore, the instruments were tied to that, so he didn't think they should be used. Other times, people were not theological, and, and his wasn't a theological argument that the Bible commanded. It was a wisdom argument that we shouldn't do it. Other people, it was a pragmatic argument. They didn't have musicians in their church. And so they didn't have music. Some of those churches, it became tradition, and they never added instruments. So these, I'm bringing these out only to say there have been concerns about worship all throughout history. We know that we have watched what has been affectionately or non-affectionately called worship wars, right? Most of us in this room have lived through that at some point when there was a shift from hymns to contemporary music and whether we should do contemporary music, whether certain instruments should be used. We should, and then we have people say we should only sing contemporary music because that is the music that the people of, the, of, of our culture sing. So we should adapt our lyrics to those. And we've always had this discussion, sometimes wars over what worship would look like. So why did, why were there aspects of congregational participation that needed to be reformed? Well, leading up to the time of the 
the Reformation, music in church was going through a, a multi-century change. So the Latin Mass was used very early on, and we won't go through all the tenets and, and reasons for the Mass, but if you watched the Luther movie last night, and the monks, every time they gathered, they were chanting, that was parts of the Mass. So the Mass had its, its roots in early music with lots of chants. The chants came about for the Mass under, under leadership of government rulers, but also the monks would begin to start writing that music. They were the ones that had the time and trained in music. So the Mass that started out very beautiful and rather simple over the years became more complex. And it was in Latin, so that was difficult if people did not know Latin. So the uneducated that would come to church didn't know Latin. They couldn't understand that. And as the monks began to grow in their understanding of music and change, they began to um, write more difficult music. Choirs gradually began to replace the congregation's participation in the 4th and 5th century. So this is early on. They had choirs that would replace what before that was sung by the congregation. <clears throat> and that kept going and escalating into the ninth century when there were new, more complex forms and chants appearing that required the choirs to execute because the people that came could not do that. Uh, it's very interesting what was added. I'm not going to bore you with all the musical stuff, but it was a progression that continued to push the congregation further away. Paul Westermeyer um, wrote a book called To Deum, The Church and Music in 1998. He's very helpful in this as he deals with how this has gone, and he writes this. The result of all this was to devalue the congregation's singing and to accentuate the choirs. The oldest layer of simpler music was congregational and developed over a long period the way folk forms always do. The newer material which came suddenly, and he's referring to the ninth century changes, was more complex and foreign to the congregation in both language and music. It could not be easily assimilated except by professionals. Congregational parts of the mass were therefore assigned to the choirs. So we're moving in this direction where the congregation is less and less participatory and more and more an audience gathering. By the 12th and 13th century, there was only one part of the Mass, it seems, that was sung by the congregation, um, and that was the Sanctus part of the Mass by the 12th and 13th century. So they would come, they would receive the bread, and they would sing the Sanctus, and they would watch the monks engage in worship and the clergy. They were the only participants. They spoke and sung in Latin. The congregation was passive. The con with congreg and, and this is key. The congregational singing was ultimately prohibited by the Council of Constance in 1415. So the church speaks against congregational singing. So this is the milieu in which the reformers come in and try to hold to scripture, try to have sola scriptura, and they all looked at how this should happen differently, but there were some unifying factors, and that was at some level to have the congregation be uh, more involved. Not all of them, but most of them were coming in that direction. So Westermeyer helpfully summarizes what happened at the Reformation with singing with, with Luther and, and Zwingli and Calvin, three of the major early reformers. He says, Luther recovered the congregation's singing, Zwingli denied it, and Calvin restricted it. 
And that is a good summary. If you, summary, if you can remember that, then you're remembering where each reformer actually, and we're going to talk just a very bit about each one of those, you'll remember what each reformer was doing. Luther recovered it, Zwingli denied it, and Calvin restricted it in what was done, but he didn't deny it. So let's look at Zwingli first in Zurich. Zwingli, 1484 to 1531. Um, he was a, a, a very good musician probably the best musician. He's definitely the best musician of these three reformers, but probably, according to Westermeyer, he's the best musician of all the major reformers. Westermeyer says he was basically grounded in all instruments, such as harp, lute, viol, flute, reed pipe, and coronet, completely educated, a good composer, and so forth. And he even goes on to say that there were people who doubted Zwingli's call to ministry because he was such a strong musician said, you can't give up all those gifts and the usefulness and go into the, the pastoring and leave those gifts behind. And that was some of the wisdom that he received. However, Zwingli prohibited congregational singing, and he had biblical reasons. Remember, we're looking at sola scriptura, right? Scripture is sufficient, scripture alone. But they all applied it in different ways, and we have the same thing going on today. Zwingli said the scriptures nowhere commanded singing in worship. So he's looking at the New Testament and things like singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks in your heart in Colossians and taking that as straightforward that those songs should be sung in your heart. So he wrote, not with, singing should be done, quote, not with our voices like the Jewish singers, but with our hearts. So he was seeing New Covenant, Old Covenant distinctions here when he made that decision. He also thought worship and prayer were the same and both should be done in private. So singing, part of worship, should be done in private. So it shouldn't be done in public. And he looked at verses like Matthew 6, 6. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. So his idea was to not have singing corporately in public worship. He was moved by music in his private life. He was encouraged by music, um, it helped him uh, in his own private life. But what his thinking was, and this is important for us, his thinking was the music is what moved him and not the text that the music supported. He was more moved by the music itself and disconnected with the text. We're going to see a difference of opinion in the reformers on this. Um, but think about that in our current context. Um, there are people who would make an argument that music needs to be simple and stay out of the way and not touch our emotions at all because otherwise we're moved by the tunes and the instruments and the settings more than the words that we sing. So there's truth to that, amen? If, if we're singing and we're just enraptured by the music and we're saying words, but we, they're not hitting our heart. We don't understand what we're singing. We're not even thinking about what we're singing, but boy, do we love this song. And we've had that in, uh, in congregations that we've served before. Certain songs, I've told this story before, certain songs in one congregation, people could not be seeming engaged physically in their responses to worship at all. But as soon as one particular chorus was sung, oh, hands in the air. And I'm not against hands in the air or emotion now. Don't hear that. But it was not the words of it because the words were simplistic. It was the music that moved them. So we need to be careful of that, but we don't want to make mistakes on the other side that says our music needs to be boring and not the right kinds of tunes to support the different emotions of text because God created us with emotions, right? They're just supposed to be strapped and bound to the word 
and not let our emotions set the word aside. So Zwingli's wrestling with real things with these people through the scriptures and coming to the conclusion that you should not sing corporately, even though in the homes, and remember, the church controlled all this, right? So in, in Zwingli, Zurich, Zurich, when the homes, when they worshiped at homes in the families, um, they could sing parts if they had the ability. That was allowed, but not in um, worship. I'm going to retract that. I've got that with the wrong form, reformer. That's Calvin. Okay, so that last statement about parts, forget that here. I looked away from my notes and I brought the wrong fact with the wrong person. So Zwingli in Zurich. Since we're going to focus on, on Luther as the end, we'll move to Calvin, who's later, 1509-1564. Calvin thought singing was a form of prayer. He didn't think it was prayer. He thought it was a form of prayer. He wrote this in his proposal for worship in 1537. It is a thing very expedient for the edification of the church to sing some psalms in the form of public prayers through which one may pray to God or sing his praise so that the hearts of all might be moved and incited to forms like prayer and to render like praises and thanks to God with similar affection. So music for him was a form of prayer, so it was definitely allowable. But he also knew, knew music was a powerful tool. So he was looking at the same thing that Zwingli was in Zurich. In Geneva, he's looking at the same thing, that music is a powerful tool. It could be misused. So he said in public worship, the songs, quote, he wrote this in the preface to the Geneva Psalter, the, song, the public worship was, quote, to have songs not only honest but also holy which will be like spurs to incite us to prayer and to praise God and to meditate upon his works in order to love, fear, honor, and glorify him. So Westermeyer's statement that Calvin limits it is because Calvin limits what happens with music. He only almost exclusively had metrical psalms, so the words of the psalms that could be altered to fit the metrical, the meter of the hymn. You know, every hymn that we sing has a meter. Even congregate, even contemporary stuff has a form of meter. But if you look in the back of a hymnal, you'll see a metrical index that every one of the melodies that you see will have numbers after it. It may be refrain or CM for common meter or LM for long meter, things like that. And that means when you write the, the, the words that go to that, there's a specific poetic meter that all of those will fit into. I could pollute your mind with examples of this with contemporary lyrics written in a meter that fit old hymns, but I'll refrain from doing that because it'll be an earworm that you will not like me for if I do that. So he wanted the Psalms, and he allowed the Psalms to be altered, right? Not, not like the, the, the prohibition was a couple of hundred years before that said you could only sing Psalms that were exactly like the Scriptures, he wanted to open it a little bit so they could fit the meter to be sung. But he also, it was almost exclusively psalm, psalmody. He also allowed the singing of the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and Simeon's song, a few p other passages of Scripture. But he also said that mono, monophonic lines were the only thing that could be done. So one voice, all unison or octaves. Um, so an octave is like somebody's singing up here and somebody's singing down there. The same note at different levels, but it was all one line of melody for everyone to sing. 
he thought that harmony would complicate it so that it would start moving us toward our emotions more. And you know what that's like. When we sing psalms, uh, songs like It Is Well With My Soul, which our congregation loves to sing, and we get to the end when we're singing all a cappella and the parts are heard, it stirs us underneath that music, doesn't it? So he was fearful of that being something that could lead to not focusing on the words, but focusing on the music. And he also had no instruments in Geneva. It was a cappella. No choirs other than children. He would teach children new hymns, and he'd use children to teach the congregation. But there were no choirs. So that's in opposition to the Mass, right? Calvin, Calvin wanted nothing to do with the forms of the Mass. He was doing everything differently. And Calvin is the one that had these limitations in corporate worship in Geneva, but when they sang at home with their families, if they had the ability, they could sing parts. So it wasn't, he was really focused on corporate worship and what the Bible said about corporate worship. <clears throat> so Zwingli um, prohibits, Calvin limits, and then you have Mr. Luther. And Luther is the one, as Westermeyer said, recovered. So Luther, 1483 to 1546. Uh, a marvelous gift to the church in many ways, um, not the least of which was his reformation of the mass. You see, Luther did not have the idea of overthrowing what was done, right? We know that from history and how we've looked at Luther. We even saw that last night. Remember or Friday night in the movie when Luther rebuked Karlstadt for what he was doing? Because he was coming in, he was just going to throw over the whole system. And Luther came back. Um, out of being protected and, you know, kept away from people. And he came back and he rebuked him. And so what are you doing? Because he didn't have in mind to overthrow everything. He wanted to reform it from the inside out with the scriptures. He did the same thing with worship. In a writing that he wrote in 1520 called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, he identified a threefold captivity of the table, of the Lord's table. And he identified these as withholding the cup from the laity, transubstantiation, which he was against, and the teaching of sacrifices in the Mass. So he's got his eye toward the Mass and reforming it theologically, but you hear his concern for congregational participation as well when he is saying that withholding the cup in the Lord's Supper from the church um, is part of their captivity to the, um, the leaders of the Roman church. He wrote a year later in 1521 in a... In a uh, document called The Misuse of the Mass. He argued that the unbiblical elements of the Mass were based on a false conception of the priesthood. He tied them all together, that these things were happening because they didn't understand the priesthood as brought in the Bible and it was being misrepresented in the church. He also wrote that Scripture did not teach the idea of a continual sacrifice so he wants to move away from the continual sacrifice of transubstantiation. He wants to move away from that. And he argued against the papacy, all of those in, in 1521. Luther was ca he's a capable musician. He was a capable amateur musician. Um, and he was a composer, and he loved music. Uh, Luther was passionate about music. He wrote a letter to a friend, to Louis Senful in 1530, where he wrote, Indeed, I plainly judge and do not hesitate to affirm that except for theology the study of God, the word of God, the word about God, except for theology, there is no art that could be put on the same level with music. He also wrote in a, in a preference to George, uh, a George Rouse symphony, which was a composer um, 
in, uh, that, that he was, that was actually motivated by Luther to write. He wrote in the, in the foreword to this symphony. Let me find my notes here again. I, I looked away. I'm sorry. Next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. He also thought that music was a gift from God since music carried the words and words carried the word of God. And in that same uh, foreword to Ryle's symphony, he wrote, God has the gospel preached through the medium of music. So Zwingli, afraid of music, overcoming the word. Luther saying music carries words, so therefore it is the perfect vehicle for the congregation to repeat the words and the theology, that we, the words of the scriptures and the theology we learn in the Bible. <clears throat> and he was uh, passionate about doing this. In his Reformation of the Mass, he longed for more. He wrote this uh, uh, work in 1523 called Formulae Missiae, that, that he was reforming the Mass But in his introduction, he said, we need to do more. So even as he was reforming, he was trying to keep where they were that he didn't want to be and where he wanted to go accessible and learnable by the body. He was a pastor, and he wanted the body to be be along with him with this. So in 1523, he writes this in the preface of his work on reforming the Mass. I also wish that we had as many songs as possible in the vernacular, the language of the people, which the people could sing during Mass. For who doubts that originally all the people sang these which now only the choir sings or responds to while the bishop is consecrating? So he's remembering history, right? Here's Luther looking back at history and saying, the, the congregation used to sing, and over those thousand years, now the congregation doesn't sing. Why not? He's asking that question. But poets are wanting among us, or not yet known, who could compose evangelical and spiritual songs, as Paul calls them in Colossians 3.6. Worthy to be used in the church. I mention this to encourage any German poets to compose evangelical hymns for us. Luther was out front and getting people to write hymns, right? We think of hymns as music. Hymns, when when we're talking about it, that's the words. The tune is what carries the hymn. The tune that we sing is what carries the hymn. We refer to them both together today. Luther wanted poets to come forward and do things in beauty. He cared about beauty. He cared about quality, cared about quality music and beautiful text, but he wanted it in the language of the people and accessible to the people. So Luther, um, His reforms to the German mass brought this singing to the people, and he wrote hymns and encouraged other people to to write hymns. And he oversaw them. He gave critique to them on the words that they wrote. Luther translated hymns um, from the Gregorian chant, which which was the chant that was used in the the mass, uh, one of the chants used in the mass, and Catholic office hymns. He translated those into German, the ones that were biblically sound so that his people could sing them. But the different stresses in the languages uh, produced uneven and unnatural meter. Scott Annual goes into this on a lecture on worship, uh, who teaches over at the seminary we support in Conway, giving some concrete examples of this where the, when, when he would shift it into German, the stress of the languages didn't support well. So 
He began then keeping the high quality of the Latin text by writing them with the stress and cadence of the German language and experimented with pairing them with good German folk tunes, and that was with varied success. I mean, sometimes he did it with folk tunes that once he did that, he realized that the people were still thinking of the old words and not the new words. I mean, it's like some of the efforts today to take pop music, songs that we know, change a couple of words and make it about Jesus instead of your girlfriend, right? Things like that. Um, it's going to be hard, right? Even if you're making all the other words directed toward Jesus, they're going to remember when they sang that back in 1976 so what it really meant. So he's dealing with that in his own culture. Culture, because some of these were just sung in the public houses and it was too close of a connection. It fit into what Augustine was afraid of a thousand years earlier, right? That using forms that were prominent in the world might taint them for the church. He wrote this um, in his work in 1526, German Mass. I would very much like to have a true German character. For to translate the Latin text and retain the Latin tone or notes has my sanction, though it doesn't sound polished or well done. Both the text and notes, accent, melody, and manner of rendering ought to grow out of the true mother tongue and its inflection. So therefore, let's take the quality, but write it in our language so that it's easily sung and easily uh, remembered. Luther was also instrumental in encouraging Germans to write new tunes in the vernacular language while still maintaining the high quality of the Latin text. So, in other words, let's not just take their text, but let's write brand new text with the same quality, but to our music. Um, So he was encouraging this in their vernacular. So let me clear up one misunderstanding that you may have, you may not have. It's it's an old canard where people said, well, we could use popular music because Luther used bar tunes. You ever heard that said before? None of you have ever heard that said before? You have. All right, some of you. Boy, I was going to say, I don't even need to get you into this mess then. So when, just to clarify, Luther didn't go into the public houses of the day and choose the drinking songs and say, I'm going to baptize those and use them in church. The bar form was a form popular in his day in German music that was a certain form of music. It had to do with the, the way the themes were done. It, we, we talk about it as A-A-B. So the first line that we sing, just think of his hymn, uh, A Mighty Fortress. A Mighty Fortress is our God, da 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 that's A. What's the next line? It's the same thing. So that's A A. And then we have something different, right? That's B. So that's written in a bar form, A A B. But it's really, I've read it. I've heard preachers say it, and I've read it in books that Luther used bar tunes so we can use contemporary tunes that are sung in what we call now bars. So if you ever hear that, you're informed. (laughs) Luther created the famous Lutheran German chorales. He wrote them himself, and other people wrote them. Um, Johann Sebastian Bach, 200 years later, 1686 to 1750, arranged many of Luther's chorales and other composers that Luther inspired to write. Bach is considered one of the his, by one historic historian as one of the premier expositors of Luther's theology for any age. So you know that Bach wrote Sola Dea Gloria on his 
title pages of some of his works. He, he dedicated everything he did to the glory of God, and he was a Lutheran. I mean, he, he understood Luther, he understood the theology, it drove his life, and it marked his music. And so he did arrangements of many of those German chorales and put them in his music. So when you hear Bach chorales, it's very much influenced by what Luther was writing and encouraging being written. We'll sing one of those in our worship service today since it's Reformation Sunday, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. It's not written by Luther. It's written by another composer in in Wittenberg at that same time, and Bach took it and wrote, and we sing, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, to that Bach-arranged melody. So that's one of the nods to Luther we'll have in our worship service today on Reformation Sunday. Luther also wrote... um, from the Depths of Woe, which is a, a, a song based on 130 that we'll sing a modern version of, a different melody than was done in his day. Um, he also wrote, of course, The Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is loosely based on Psalm 46. So it wasn't just the words of Psalm 46. It was the theology as it affected him and wrote uh, the wonderful words. There's some information on uh, A Mighty Fortress in your bulletin insert today. You should grab a bulletin and read that about A Mighty Fortress and the expansion of the, the, what those words mean. We'll also sing another song in our worship service this morning. Uh, the doxology, which is sung to the old 100th, which has roots at the same time with the same kind of writing. Luther also regarded music as an essential for a child's education. He stated, quote, a schoolmaster must be able to sing, otherwise I will not look at him. So I won't hire a schoolmaster who isn't able to sing because he was so convinced that the next generation needed to be able to sing, and why would he be like that? Because he wants the next generation to be even stronger in congregational singing than the one he has before us. And we want the same thing. We want our children to learn music that stays with them so that they are active in the singing and worship of their churches as they get old. Let me just close with this quote uh, from the preface to a hymnal that Luther wrote. God has cheered our hearts and minds through his dear son whom he gave for us to redeem us from sin, death, and the devil. He who believes this earnestly cannot be quiet about it, but he must gladly and willingly sing. So this is what drives Luther. Luther is driven to have singing in the church and supported by the gifts of the church. Um, Calvin wanted the singing but he wanted to restrict it so that we weren't overcome by our emotions. And Zwingli was trying to be faithful to Scripture and in his, what I think were wrong, but it was his understanding of Scripture of how he would prohibit singing. Um, So we have singing in our worship service because it's commanded, but we also have singing in our worship service because I am way more Lutheran than I am Calvin in this. I am way more moved by music and see you moved by music. I believe that when we sing a text, the song that we sing, the melody that we sing it to ought to support the text. We shouldn't sing songs that are laments to happy, happy, joy, joy songs. We also shouldn't sing songs of celebration to boring and stagnant music because it's joyful when celebrated. So we, we try to choose music that undergirds the text so that we sing it better. Not that our hearts are moved by the music, but our hearts are word, moved by the words that moved a composer to write music. 
So there's a brief, and I do mean brief, overview of the recovery of singing in the Reformation that we are a beneficiary of and still protecting. So we have a few minutes if you have questions. I don't promise to have all the answers, but I'll try to answer what I can if you have questions. Good. Oh, okay. Yes, Buster. Thank you. Yeah, and that's a discussion we have. It, it definitely is. So to go back to Luther, Luther was trying to make it accessible, but he was also trying to make it beautiful. The, the, the struggle for him wasn't just the other language. It's that translating directly from that other language did not translate well into German. You know, I can imagine no language translates into, which is what German sounds like to me since I don't know it. I'm not saying it's not beautiful. I, I, don't, I don't know German. So... But he's dealing with the stresses. If Anna's here, I, I ask for her forgiveness. Is she here? No? Good. Good. Um, Anna, would, Anna would show me why German was beautiful. So, um, and that's not meant as a slight. It just meant it humor. So, uh, so he still wanted beauty, right? So some of the old texts that we sing are ordered in such a way that is not our normal order, but it is beautifully written in a poetic form. So some of those I don't want to get rid of. I want to keep singing beauty, right? So in some sense, we don't do that because we want to keep some essence of the beauty of language that we in America have lost. Um, but there are other things that do need changed. I mean, some things are even biblical but need explanation. Here I raise my... What is an Ebenezer, people ask. Have you ever been asked that? I hope you know what it is, but people don't know that. So they're singing it, and what is it? It's either they're thinking about what in the world an Ebenezer is for the rest of that hymn, or they just sing it, and it means nothing, and that drifts them into doing it. So I agree with you. There are times that we need to make sure we're communicating that well. The, the Bridging the gap of keeping some beauty from our past in English, that's difficult. So, yeah, I hear you. We, we need to be able to sing things that translate to us. At the same time, we keep us growing and strengthening in what we do. Do you have follow-up with that? It's a good point. Sure, I hear your point. Yes, because I've had people tell me that they can't follow that. Even when we keep um, a poetic viewpoint, whether it's old or not, it's poetic in the way the noun and verb might be changed to make the phrases work. I've had people tell me, I just can't, I can't follow that. Um, so it's my heart that maybe they go home and look at that so that they can follow it better because that would help them read, right? Help them read poetry, help them read, um, the, understand that poetic meter that's in Hebrew that, we try, that the translators try to bring over in English throughout the Psalms. So, uh, and there may be times we still need to do this, that, that we have to uh, just move with the needs of our body so that we are all understanding. So it's a good point, and it needs to constantly be remembered and debated. Because it's a wisdom thing, not a biblical thing, if the theology is good, like you point out. Other questions? Yes? 
Yes. Mm -hmm. Calvin is the one who didn't let instruments in. And of course, Zwingli, of these three, now there are a bunch of other reformers, right? Of these three, Zwingli wouldn't have needed them if there wasn't singing. Calvin prohibited and there was singing, and Luther... Yeah, and I, I don't I don't know what, what right, and I don't know what made them make that decision. But the way I understand it, Luther did have instruments. He wanted people to write. He wanted musicians to come forth and people to write texts. Um, and really, uh, without getting into a long and deep discussion, there are two strains of view and views on theology that I'll mention briefly. Um, I can't give any. Um, theological foundation very much on them in the sermon but two different approaches to worship and one of them stems from Luther the normative principle of worship one of them stems from Calvin the regulative principle of worship so when Westermeyer says that Calvin limited it we agree that there's there are limits to worship it's just how does God limit it and so these two different viewpoints one flowing from Luther that says anything that is, that is not forbidden in the scriptures, we are free to do. So that is abused today in lots of different ways. Um, I could give examples of those abuses. Scripture does not talk about stringing a high wire between those two points and me being up there on a unicycle and preaching the gospel and doing that as a vehicle to draw attention. Doesn't forbid that, right? So that approach to worship pressed too far without any wisdom. And that's a true statement, by the way. That's not a made-up thing. That happened. Um, That's what that would lead to because there's no prohibition to riding a unicycle on a high wire while I preach. I wish there was because I never want to do that, right? So, No, it sure didn't. But it happened. It's a true story. So the other side says Scripture speaks to how we worship. We fall into that, but there's much debate on how we interpret the Scriptures and the priority of Old Testament and New Testament texts. That's how people in our area, like Church of Christ, who the Church of Christ people who don't use instruments, they would go to the New Testament and say there's nowhere the New Testament talks about instruments, so we're forbidden to do that. Uh, So there are different ways to to look at that, and I'll talk about that a little bit. But what I'm saying is Luther's passion for music and the freedom there, he would never agree with some of the abuses, right, even though we tie that thinking um, to starting with the in the Reformation with him, and we tie the limiting, not prohibiting, but limiting of what's done in worship to Calvin. There are some PCA churches who do that, not many, but there's a whole denomination of Presbyterians. There's a bunch of different Presbyterian denominations, as you know. And I can't remember the Presbyterian Reformed Church in America, maybe. Um, They are Psalms only. They have a beautiful Psalter. I have it on my shelf. We sing some things out of that Psalter. I can't remember which Psalms, but at least one of those Psalms, uh, the Psalms, maybe Psalm 96 or 96. You wrote to 98, right? Didn't you write something to 98? I think it's 96 comes out of that Psalter, and they are psalm only. If you've read Rosaria Butterfield at all, are you familiar with who Rosaria Butterfield is? Um, she, she was, a, was a, um, um, an activist professor, a lesbian activist professor that came to Christ and now is married to a Presbyterian pastor. Her books are a, a fantastic um, understanding of patience with the gospel and God redeeming people. You should, I recommend them. 
in her hospitality book that she wrote, which will challenge you. I don't care how hospitable you are, it will challenge you. She has a long section that I disagree with on why you should only sing psalms, and it's a theological description of that. And I don't think, I don't think it's right. But yes, that, I, I don't think it's demanded. They, I'm not saying they're wrong in scripture. I don't see the same conclusions as them. But they see psalms are the only thing that should be sung. They see sp- songs and spiritual songs to be versions of psalms in the Colossian Ephesians passage. It's a deeper argument than that. But she argues for that, and she's part of that denomination. So yeah, that's all they sing in all of their churches is psalms only out of their psalter. Other questions? Thank you. We'll gather back here in a bit for worship.